Welcome to Global Perspectives, the International Insolvency Institute's podcast. Welcome back to the International Insolvency Institute's Global Perspectives podcast. My name is Adam Crane, and I am chair of the IIIS NextGen program and co-chair of the IIIS Regional Committee for the United States, Canada, and the Caribbean. On today's episode, we are joined by Professor Anthony Casey of the University of Chicago Law School. We will be speaking about third-party releases under U.S. bankruptcy law. This episode will be moderated by Dr. Eugenio Vicari, who is a senior lecturer with the Royal Holloway University of London. Welcome back to another podcast organized by the IIII NextGen program. My name is Eugenio Vaccari, and I'm senior lecturer at Royal Holloway University of London, as well as a member of the IIII NextGen Executive Committee. Today, we will speak of third-party releases under U.S. bankruptcy law. I'm very grateful to be joined by Professor Tony Casey. Tony is a professor of law and economics at the University of Chicago. His research on the intersection of finance and law has been published on several leading academic journals. And before entering academics, uh, Professor Casey was a partner at Kirkland Ellis. Tony is also a member of several leading insolvency organizations, including Insel International and the American Bankruptcy Institute. Tony, we're very pleased of having you here. Um, I'll start with my first question for today. What are third party uh, releases and what is their purpose? Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Um, great to be participating in this. Um, so to start with third party releases, and you'll also sometimes hear the term non-debtor release and, and they really mean the same thing. The idea is an, an order from the court that is included in a bankruptcy plan. So the ultimate confirmation plan in chapter 11 that releases the liability that one party has to another party. But the key is that neither of those two parties are the debtor. So you might have a claim that um, a creditor has against the debtor and the debtor's plan says that claim is released. But on top of that, a related claim that the creditor might have against an insurance company, uh, an equity holder, uh, or an affiliate of the debtor is also released. So if I have a claim against Boy Scouts of America, for example, uh, their plan might release my claim not only against them, but against their affiliate local entity or against their insurer. And that's why they're called third-party or non-debtor releases, because the claimant is not the debtor and the claim is against a party that is also not the debtor. So the plan of reorganization might include an order releasing those claims. Now, there's two types of non-debtor or third-party releases that have been talked about in the cases. One is the consensual non-debtor release or a non-consensual non-debtor release. So the consensual release is simply the creditor whose claim is being released agrees to have that claim released. That, you know, they give consent. Therefore, you know, they've just, like any other settlement agreement, they've agreed to give up a claim. It's included in the plan uh, of confirmation so that it's part of a, a global deal that might be reached. A non-consensual release would be if the person holding the claim did not consent to it. So the, the, the plan of reorganization is forcing them to give up the claim. And usually the way that the releases work, if you think about 
the phrase non-debtor or third-party release, it's a shorthand for a release and an injunction. The injunction says you can't bring these claims uh, after this plan is confirmed. So you're releasing the claim and you're enjoined from bringing them against the non-debtor, again, the insurer, the affiliate, the shareholder. Now, that's just a like kind of vanilla description. The way they're really working in the plans is no one's getting their claim uh, non-consensually released without part of a bigger deal. So what's usually happening is a class of creditors has voted to accept a settlement that's part of the reorganization plan, but not every single creditor has voted in favor. So let's say there's a 95% vote to accept a settlement that's in the plan, the 5% who vote no, what do you do with them? And the plan or the agreement that's on the table includes this non-debtor third-party release. So the insurer might say, I'll give the estate a million dollars. And that million dollars will be available for all the claims that the creditors have against the estate, as long as those creditors not only give up their claims against the estate, but they give up their claims against me, the insurer. 95% say they want that deal. 5% say they don't want the deal. The bankruptcy, currently the bankruptcy courts in the US allow those deals. Now that's being questioned at the Supreme Court right now. They allow those deals uh, and they force the 5% in certain circumstances to accept the deal. That's where the non-consensual release uh, comes into play. The consensual releases would be, let's say, everyone says we're fine with that deal and we're on board with the release, then it gets included in the plan. Um, those, So those are the way, that's what we mean when we're talking about these releases uh, that get put into the plan. Now, why are they there? They're there to get that insurer to agree to the deal or that affiliate, that shareholder. And the reason that the insurer, the shareholder, the affiliate wants the deal is they're often worried that I'll settle with the debtor, I'll give that million dollars, but then someone will turn around and sue me for the exact same thing, someone being the creditor of the debtor, uh, the, you know, someone who has a claim that, my, that is related to, to the claim I'm settling with the debtor, and they'll sue me and I'll still have to pay the million dollars to them. And so they don't they won't agree to the settlement unless they've got this, what people will talk about global settlement in place that includes these releases. Thanks, Tony. Um, I understand that the legality of consensual party releases is not challenged. However, courts seem to disagree on the notion of consent. What are the court's views on this matter? Yeah, so consensual releases from the way that most debtors view them can be achieved by saying to the creditors, here's the deal, it includes these releases. If you want to opt out, check this box. And so they call that kind of opt out consent, meaning you, you consent unless you check that box to say you don't want to have your claim released. Um, that's generally been allowed by the bankruptcy courts. That's again, I think you, you, you see quite a few plans that have this opt out consent mechanism. The US trustee, so in the United States chapter 11 cases, the United States trustee is a kind of 
representative of the government in all bankruptcies and serves as a, they'll call themselves a watchdog to make sure that the process is proper. They generally, the, the representatives of the U.S. trustee generally object to opt out consent. They say you can't consent by simply not checking a box. You need opt in consent. So you would have to send each claimant a, a, a form that says, if you agree to this release, check the box. And so they want an affirmative opt in consent, whereas most debtors are, would ask for an opt out consent. Uh, and I, as I said, the bankruptcy courts have generally said opt out consent is okay, but the U.S. trustee continues to challenge that. Uh, and so it is is not, there's no high court Supreme Court ruling on whether or not opt in or opt out counts for consent. So that's to the extent third party releases um, are continued to be used, one battleground and future area of litigation is certainly going to be what what it means to consent. And so you have to litigate whether or not opt in or opt out is okay. And then there's a separate point of whether or not you've given them proper notice of what it is they're consenting to. So full information about what they're releasing, why they're releasing it, what they're getting for that release, which is usually a, a, a piece of that payment that's going to the debtor that they now the creditors can access um, when they go to make their claim against the debtor. Thanks, Tony. Um, I move now to non-consensual third-party releases. Now we could say that with reference to them, the situation is even murkier. Except for asbestos-related claims, it seems that federal courts are split as to whether they can be authorized as, to, as part of a chapter 11 restructuring plan. Uh, again, could you please explain what the situation is in the U.S. at the moment? Yeah, so you're right to say it's definitely murkier. So you know, there's for consensual releases, there's this question of what counts as for a consent. But as I said at the beginning, there are these cases where the debtor puts in place a plan that has a non-consensual consensual release. Almost always, what's going on is. They're trying to bind the holdouts of a certain class. So the overwhelming majority of a class of creditors likes the deal that's being proposed and they agree to give up their, their claim against a non-debtor. But 5%, 10% vote no and don't give it up. And so the court says, the courts can say, if, if they're allowed, they can say, we're going to bind those holdouts. Most bankruptcy courts, again, most Bankruptcy courts are fine with non-consensual third-party releases. They have created various tests to say when they're appropriate. So usually it's a test that says something like, you know, was there an arm's length negotiation that uh, led to this settlement, including the releases? Are the released, are the parties whose claims are being released getting compensated for those claims? Uh, is the release necessary in order to get a settlement through? And are they getting as much as they would have, or or at least as much as they would have if the in the absence of a reorganization plan? And so that requires the court to value the claim being released, uh, what it would have been worth if it had been litigated outside of the bankruptcy, 
And then on the other side, the compensation that's coming in from the party who's getting the release. So again, to use the insurer example, the insurer is paying in that million dollars. The million dollars goes into a fund. The creditors can access that fund. And in order to access the fund, they're agreeing to give up their claim against the debtor and against the insurer. Well, you've got to say that that million dollars is a, a fair payment for the claim that they're giving up against the debtor and the claim they're giving up against the insurer. And again, I use the insurer example because it's the simplest, but the same thing happens when you have claims against an equity holder or an affiliate, a director, an officer, and we release those. So the bankruptcy courts have generally allowed these non-consensual releases to bind the holdouts in the class. The appellate courts have not been as kind of uniform. So certain circuits in the in the US, the Fifth Circuit comes to mind, have said you can't do non-consensual releases, which means that the bankruptcy courts in those circuits, even though they had been doing them before, are now bound by the appellate court that says you're not allowed to grant non-consensual releases. Other circuits, and in particular the second and third circuits where New York and Delaware are, um, those circuits have said you can grant third-party releases if you meet this kind of stringent test of showing that it is um, uh, that there was a, a good faith arm's length negotiation and the amount being paid uh, uh, adequately compensates the party for their release claims. So we have that circuit split, the way the U.S. lawyers will talk about it, between a few circuits that say you can't grant release non-consensual releases and a few circuits that say you can. And um, as most people who follow this know, this dispute has now gone to the U.S. Supreme Court, which has before it a case that asked the exact question of whether or not you can allow these. So it, the circuit split is now before the Supreme Court. So we'll likely see an answer soon uh, on that question. Thanks, Tony. Before we move to the Supreme Court judgments, uh, I wanted to touch on another matter that uh, you uh, briefly covered uh, in, in your answer, which is basically procedure. Uh, Third-party releases can only be granted if specific rules are followed and preliminary conditions are met. You mentioned some of them already, but can you please summarize uh, the main requirements for our audience? Yeah, so when I, when I was talking about earlier, I was talking about what the kind of, uh, kind of, court test for whether they're adequate, but there's actually even some more procedure that goes in beforehand. So I, I, it's probably useful to talk about that. So as I said at the very beginning, these are part of a plan of reorganization. So the first step is that the debtor negotiates a settlement with the, the non-debtor whose claims are going to be, the claims against whom we're releasing. So the debtor might have a, a deal with the insurer or the private equity fund who has been, people have alleged that they fraudulently conveyed or transferred assets out of the debtor on the eve of bankruptcy. So the debtor says to that party, we're going to bring our claims against you unless you give us a settlement payment. So they negotiate a settlement, the insurer, the affiliate, the private equity company or private equity firm says, we'll pay, uh, again, I'll use just a million dollars to settle it but we want you to also include a settlement from all the claimants against you for related claims. The debtor agrees to that. Then it puts it in the plan of reorganization. 
So the chapter 11 plan says, as part of our general reorganization, we're going to include this release. Now the procedural kind of steps kick in. Any chapter 11 plan has to be disclosed to all the creditors, has to be voted on by each of the classes of creditors, uh, and then it has to meet various requirements. And so in chapter 11, there's to get to the code, it's section 1129 says, anything, any plan of reorganization has to be fair, can't unfairly discriminate. It has to go through the voting process. And basically it, the code sets out this procedure for confirming a plan. So the releases are included in the plan and 1129 gives you the procedure for confirming that plan. So you have to follow all those steps, which include the voting. And that's why I've said a few times that there's these releases get a vote of the class of creditors, and it's usually an overwhelming majority that's required to approve it. Then the court has to say, this plan, including those releases, meet our requirements. That's where the substantive test that I was talking about comes in. So the Second Circuit has said there's seven factors to consider. You know, and all of these factors go toward the question of whether or not this was this this settlement agreement was necessary to the reorganization, whether it was negotiated at arm's length, and whether the creditors are getting something that is an adequate compensation for the claims they're giving up. And, and that's where we talk about, you know, was there a payment given? And then was the payment being given equal to or better than what they would receive outside of the deal? So often this is called the best interest of the creditors test. A plan of reorganization has to give each creditor at least what they would get if there was no plan of reorganization, if, there, if the company was lit liquidated. And then with third-party releases, what that would look like is the debtor gets liquidated and then the creditors sue the non-debtor, the insurer, the private equity, the affiliate for their claims, what would they get? And the court, the second circuit made clear and the third circuit has a similar test. The court requires that the amount they're getting in the plan and the settlement is greater than what they would be expected to get in that litigation liquidation of the debtor plus litigation against a third party. So they go through this test to determine whether or not uh, the releases are adequate. And again, before they even get there, they have to go through all the requirements of a chapter 11 plan. Thanks, Tony. Um, we were speaking about this uh, earlier on, but third party releases have been used in uh, several prominent uh, chapter 11 cases, including Asena, Boy Scouts of America and Purdue Pharma. Um, as, as you uh, mentioned earlier on, uh, the Supreme Court recently heard uh, oral arguments in the case of Purdue. Uh, could you briefly summarize the procedural history of these cases uh, and explain why their use uh, has proven so controversial? Sure. The first thing to note is the releases are actually, third-party releases are very common in chapter 11 cases. It's hard to think of, and I can't come up with uh, an example of a case, a major complex chapter 11 case that didn't include some sort of third party release. Now, as we talked about earlier, some of them are consensual, some of them are non-consensual, but it's almost required to get a settlement in chapter 11 to have releases of non-debtors 
precisely because chapter 11 cases have so many parties and are so complicated. So before I get to the controversial cases, just to give you a couple examples, look at any crypto asset case right now, BlockFi, Celsius, FTX, their, their plans of reorganization will include in them third-party non-debtor releases. Now, in most of those, they've been consensual, opt-out consent um, releases where the parties are given the, uh, a box they can check if they don't want to release their claims against affiliates or just claims against other parties that might be counterparties of the debtor. And so just as a starting point, it's it's useful to note that they're, they're used kind of across the board, but the controversy comes up when they're non-consensual and then it comes up even more so in tort cases and, and mass tort cases. So the Boy Scouts in Purdue are these types of cases. So you could think of uh, think of a debtor where one group of creditors has, have tort claims against the debtor, and that group of creditors might be in the tens of thousands, that's the Boy Scouts, hundreds of thousands, that's Purdue's. So you have hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of claimants and they're voting on a deal and they vote in favor of the deal. And the deal says, we are going to settle our claims with the debtor, but also our claims against the insurers, the affiliates, and in Boy Scouts, it's the insurers and the local affiliates and all kinds of other entities. And Purdue, it's against the shareholders of the company before bankruptcy, the Sackler family. And so these, these agreements, again, they're voted on by the creditors and the majority vote in favor, but because the class is so big, that minority who doesn't vote in favor is actually thousands of people. Uh, and so they say, we don't want the deal. These became controversial in part, you know, the US trustees always objected to non-consensual releases, but for many years, no one really noticed. When I say no one, I mean no one in the media outside of bankruptcy. But the Purdue case and the Boy Scout case in particular got a lot of media attention because of the kind of facts behind the case. So the Purdue case, Purdue was the um, manufacturer of Oxycontin, uh, an opioid painkiller. And it came out in the early 2000s that the company had marketed the drug as if it was not addictive when it was very addictive. And then facts came out to suggest that the family that owned, or the members of the family that owned Purdue, this is the Sackler family, knew that they were marketing the drug in a misleading way. And this caused thousands of deaths and contributed to the opioid epidemic in the United States and, and even more broadly in the world. And so these claims kind of before the bankruptcy, this had gotten a lot of media attention because it was such bad behavior that had such a large effect. The Boy Scouts, so their cases involved the sexual abuse of children who were in the Boy Scouts by some of the um, scout leaders. And those claims have been building and the numbers have been coming to light were again in the tens of thousands. And because the behavior was so reprehensible, this got a lot of media attention. So now beyond just aside from bankruptcy, these cases are in the media. So then when Purdue files for bankruptcy and has a settlement that includes a release of the claims that the claimants have against the Sackler family, that got everyone's attention. So there's the, the kind of knee jerk instinct is, 
wait a second, you're using bankruptcy to force an opioid victim to give up their claim against the Sacklers who knowingly marketed this drug, no, no, marketed this drug knowing that it was going to allow people and cause people to get addicted. Or in the Boy Scouts, you're releasing claims of an abuse victim against an organization which the allegations are didn't do what it should have done to protect against that, that abuse. That you, you know, your instinct is to say it's not fair to release claims against those wrongdoers. Now, the counter argument is, you know, it's not fair and it's not a wonderful outcome. But what's the alternative? And that in the Purdue cases, that maybe there's no money on the table for anyone. And so in Purdue, 110,000 claimants voted in favor of the deal, four or 5,000 voted against, the 100 that, some thousand that voted in favor, those were victims as well. And they're like, yeah, we know that the Sacklers were wrongdoers, but what we want is you know, kind of compensation. And that's what the deal was intended to provide. So that's where the controversy comes from. Um, where the procedure, I'll kind of just briefly go through it, so Purdue filed for bankruptcy in September of 2019. By this point, the, the equity holders, the Sacklers are dis, kind of disengaged from the company. There's a new independent board. They file for bankruptcy and they have claims that the company has against the Sacklers. Various claims related to uh, fraudulent conveyance, potential claims about um, the way the company was run, piercing the corporate veil claims might be on the table. Creditors of Purdue, these are the tort victims who were either the victims themselves of the opi opioid epidemic or families of them, have claims against the company and then potential claims against the Sacklers. As I noted before, a settlement was reached and there was a vote on it. So the settlement started out with about $4 billion coming from the Sacklers to go into funds that would be available for the claimants to get compensated from. Uh, over time, that settlement has gone from four billion to six to almost six billion. So it's five point five to six billion dollars being put in by the Sacklers into a fund. This this plan gets proposed, as I noted, one hundred ten thousand claimants vote, ninety seven percent, ninety six percent. I can't remember the exact number. Vote in favor of it. Now I should note, lots of claimants just don't vote. They they didn't turn they didn't turn in their uh, form. So we have 90 some percent of those who voted voting in favor, three or four percent voting against, and then a large chunk who don't vote. The bankruptcy judge confirms the plan and says, this is the best you're going to get. And to go back to the reprehensible behavior, the bankruptcy judge never said, you know, we want to let the Sacklers off. The bankruptcy judge said, you know, the Sacklers were wrongdoers. We want to get as much money as we can from them. And we think this settlement gets more than you'll get if you litigate against them outside of bankruptcy. And this allows us to set up this fund that'll be available for the victims and goes through the various factors of why it was the best deal available. The district court reversed the bankruptcy judge. So a group of claimants appealed to the district court saying this plan shouldn't be allowed because there's non-consensual releases. The Southern District of New York says non-consensual releases are not allowed. The debtor then appeals that 
to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. And then that court reverses the district court, which is means that it affirmed the bankruptcy judge. So this is where kind of the procedure gets a little confusing because there's four levels. So the Second Circuit says the releases are okay. We allow non-consensual releases if you meet this test, the seven factors. Here, that test was met. Therefore, the plan should be confirmed. At this point, all of the appealing parties other than the U.S. trustee had reached a settlement. So there are some creditors who voted against the releases, but they weren't the ones who had appealed and weren't the ones appealing. But the United States trustee still objected. So the United States trustee then files a motion with the U.S. Supreme Court. It was technically a, a motion to stay implementation of the plan, but it was treated as a motion requesting the Supreme Court to hear the case. The Supreme Court says, we will hear the case. So the technical term for the lawyers is they granted certiorari. So they granted the writ of certiorari, even though technically it was a motion for a stay, they treated it like a motion asking for a cert. So the Supreme Court took the case with the U.S. trustee appealing. Again, the U.S. trustee is not a claimant. They're just appealing because they object to non-consensual releases as a general matter and say that they're not allowed under the bankruptcy code. So that case now is before the U.S. Supreme Court. The parties briefed the case. The case was argued a week and a half ago before the Supreme Court. We'll likely have an opinion in the spring um, of next year. So I would guess May, but probably June of 24, we'll get an opinion from the U.S. Supreme Court on whether or not non-consensual releases are allowed. You also mentioned Boy Scouts. So that case is at a different procedural point. They had a plan confirmed by the bankruptcy court that is now on appeal to the Third Circuit. Uh, and the Third Circuit has the case pending before it with multiple issues on appeal, but one of the issues being whether or not the releases, the non-debtor, non-consensual releases in the plan are appropriate. There's really two questions there. One, are they allowed? That's the same question from Purdue. And then is the scope of the release appropriate? So the first question will turn on what the Supreme Court says in the Purdue case. And so that's where procedurally these cases stand. Thanks, Tony. Um, as you mentioned, the judgment uh, uh, in Purdue will have lasting effects on the use of third party releases under the US bankruptcy court. And uh, um, yeah, as you mentioned, this podcast is recorded at a time when the judgment uh, has not yet been released uh, in December 2023. Um, could you please discuss the potential impact of this judgment, depending on whether the Supreme Court decides to authorize, prohibit, or limit the use of third-party releases under U.S. bankruptcy law? So earlier, uh, you had mentioned, I think, um, asbestos cases. So it's important to put those to the side. That is to say, this ruling won't have an effect on asbestos cases. Uh, the reason is there's a separate statutory provision in the bankruptcy code that specifically allows for non-debtor, non-consensual third-party releases in asbestos cases. This is the, the code provision is 524G. So you'll often hear people say, oh, 524G is different. So 524G specifically allows for releases in asbestos cases. 
Uh, I raise that to say, you know, that's the group of cases that won't be affected. All other chapter 11 cases will be affected. So that's why this case is so important. Um, in mass tort cases, if the court says that third party releases are not allowed, uh, then settling mass tort cases in bankruptcy will be much more complicated. Uh, in Purdue, in the Boy Scouts, in some of the other opioid bankruptcies, you have tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of claimants. And it will be you know, almost impossible to get a global settlement with 100% of those claimants signing on. And so the debtors and the, and the, the insurers and the equity holders that we think of in these, not, in these release cases will be negotiating a plan that will require consensual releases. And they'll expect to get in the 90%, perhaps, um, but they'll never expect to get 100%. And so that changes the dynamic in the bargaining. So uh, um, the Sacklers in Purdue, an insurer in another case, might be willing to pay a lot less money if they know that 4% of the claimants could turn around and sue them the following, you know, after the bankruptcy is over. And it's particularly uh, acute in, this problem is particularly acute in, bank, in mass tort bankruptcies because the variance on judgments is so high. So two or three claimants might be able to get punitive damages that outside of bankruptcy that are equal to the same, basically uh, um, all the value that the defendant has. And so they might say, why well, I, I know I can settle with the majority of claimants, but it doesn't really put me in a better place because the remaining few can still extract all that value again. And in Purdue, in particular, there were multiple state attorneys general who were suing, uh, threatening to sue the Sacklers. And they were worried that, you know, one state wins and we're still paying just as much money. So we're not going to settle unless all states are on board. So it just changes the bargaining dynamic because you, you need that full consent in order for the party to feel like they're getting something out of the settlement. Now, in non-mass tort cases, like the crypto cases I mentioned earlier, you do have releases and you have these consensual opt-out releases. So an effect of a ruling, if the Supreme Court says that releases are not allowed, the effect in those cases will be a litigation about what consent means, because the U.S. trustee says opt-out consent is not sufficient. So therefore, we know that we're going to have cases where that issue gets litigated and the parties say, what counts, opt in or opt out. And then if the courts went to opt in consent, it gets really complicated because as I mentioned before, in Purdue, you had 110,000 claims that voted. You had three or 400,000 that didn't vote. Right? If they didn't vote, you they can't opt in or out. And so you're talking about trying to get a settlement with claimants that are passive and not uh, engaged. And so getting opt in voting is going to be really complicated. In the crypto cases, even in the opt out ones, you know, BlockFi had 10,000 opt outs. If you have an opt in requirement, that could become 50,000. So, so you just, it really becomes difficult to settle these claims on a global 
uh, scale if you can't use these releases. And so the impact could be very large, uh, especially in mass tort, but again, across all complex chapter 11 cases, the impact could be very large if they say that the code does not provide uh, the authority for these releases. Thanks, Tony, and thanks for uh, being with us uh, today. It has been lovely having this conversation with you. Great. It's great to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Global Perspectives. This podcast has been brought to you by the International Insolvency Institute. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or Google Play.